If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. All right, let's so today's par- uh, sermon is called Parables 101, 201, 301, 401. So, we all know that a distinctive feature of Jesus' ministry was his use of parables. Now, parables were were rarely used in the Old Testament and rarely used by rabbis before Jesus, but Jesus used them, and he used them a lot. And so, we have to start asking, what exactly are parables? We need to understand them properly. We need to understand, first, that parables are not the same as allegories. An allegory is a story in, in which every element is a symbol representing something Whereas parables are simple stories to to teach one or sometimes two or even more lessons. In parables, not every element in the parable has a symbolic meaning. And it's a mistake to try to find a symbolic meaning in every single element. So just understand, it's a little story told to teach a, a lesson, maybe more than one. So then we ask, why, other than the fact that it's a good way to teach, why did Jesus use so many parables? Well, he explains this to his disciples in Mark chapter 4. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive And hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And then later in the chapter, it says, and with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. What does this mean? Some people think that they're told in parables. So that only the the predestined, the special people could possibly understand them and come to faith. But that's incorrect. Look carefully at how Mark puts it here. Those around him with the 12. Those around him with the 12. It was not only the 12 chosen to be apostles who came to him. Jesus would be out there preaching publicly in parables. And all of those who cared about the truth enough to pursue the matter, would come to him. And to them it was given to know, because they cared enough to look into it. All such would learn the meanings of the parables. Those who didn't care about the truth, great for them. They had the option of writing off the parables as just cute little stories and going on their way. So the parables, using the parables, was not actually done for predestination, but for self-selection. It was up to the people whether they cared enough to know the meaning. As Christians, it is given to all of us to understand the parables, and most of them are quite plain. The lesson 
or lessons are easily discernible with a little thought and exegesis. Uh, consider, for example, uh, the parable of the pearl of great price. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So there you go. It's very short, to the point, univocal. There's really no question about the meaning of it. Uh, the kingdom of heaven, eternal life with Jesus is worth more than everything else combined, and you should be willing to give up everything in order to gain that one thing. So I said, short, simple, to the point. Uh, this is an example of what I would call parables 101. You know, the first level, the ground floor, the introductory course, easy stuff. But some parables require some more careful exegesis. Some of them may have more than one lesson. Consider, for example, the parable of the talents. And you probably know the story of the parable of the talents. Here's how we see it in Matthew 25. Uh, you have a man traveling, and this is likened to the kingdom of heaven, a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and bought, brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then the one who received two, he came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents. And he gets the same kind of message from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. There's the parable of the talents. The guy who had gotten only one, he didn't do anything. with. He just buried it in the ground. And the master is not happy with them. Says you should at least have put it into the bank. At least gotten interest instead of burying it in the ground. And then the moral of the story for everyone who, to everyone who has more will be given. From him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. Pretty simple, right? Pretty plain, right? But Jesus sometimes told similar parables, almost identical, but with subtle changes sometimes, because he wants to emphasize a different point. Uh, else time in Luke chapter 19, a different time, he gave a, a similar parable, the parable of the minus. And it's, I say, similar, but with a subtle difference. Here he calls ten of his servants and delivers to them ten minus. And here, too, the one who does nothing is lambasted. But notice here, the first one, your mina has earned ten minus. Well done, good servant. Have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Master, you have, your minas are in five minas. says, you will be over five cities. Notice the difference in the two situations. 
Here, the guy who got five talents, the first one in Matthew, parable of the talents, the first guy got five, the second one made two, yet they received the same reward. But in the parable of the minus, the guy who made 10 gets twice as much reward as the guy who made five. Why is that? Why the difference? Well, here's where you have to look carefully. Compare the two parables, and you'll learn a second lesson. In the first one, the fellow who made five started with five. So he had 100% return on the investment. The fellow who started with two made two more. 100% return on investment. So while the first fellow made more on an absolute level, each of them had the same return on what they were given. Remember, the master gave to them according to their ability. In the second, each servant starts with one. Okay, so the guy who made 10 had double the return as the guy who made five. And that's why he gets double the reward. And so there's an important lesson here that you get by comparing the two parables. God judges you according to what you do with what you have. Not with what you don't have. Now, worldwide, we look at uh, Christians in, in other countries, third world countries, uh, countries with persecution, and we think, you know what? They don't have the resources we have here. They don't have the opportunities, perhaps, that we have here. How is it fair that we can store up more treasure in heaven than they can just because we have more opportunities? Well, the parable of the talents answers it. Talents and the minus. You are judged according to what you do with what you have. A person who has far fewer opportunities can still make the same return on it and can still get the same reward you do. You are judged, okay, as we see Jesus say here in Luke 12, for everyone, to has, for to everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So, we have a lot of opportunities here, folks. We have a lot of resources here to be doing things for the Lord. Think about it. What are we doing with that? In the parable of the sower and the seed. Uh, the fourth seed is the good one. The fourth soil is the good one. So on good ground, those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. You can do more with what God has given you. Okay? Someone will bear fruit 30-fold. But why settle for 30-fold? Why not go for the 60-fold? If you have missed any episodes and would like to listen to them, they will all be available on our YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can find the links to these on our website, truthinmydays.com, or you can look for Truth In My Days on YouTube as one word. Why settle for the 60-fold? Why not go for the 100-fold or more? So when you compare these two parables, you get meaning not only that you have to, to do things with what God has given to you if you want to make your master happy, but also this lesson that you are judged according to what you do with what you were given. We don't all start at the same starting line. We don't all have to finish at the same finishing line. So this would be what I would call parables, the next level up. Parables 201. You got to do a little more digging on these ones. You need to read more carefully, pay attention to all the details to make sure you get all the lessons. But there's some parables 
that seem to be more difficult to understand than these, that give trouble even to commentators. Uh, one of these is the parable of the wedding feast. And the parable of the wedding feast goes like this. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's Matthew 22, 1 to 10. Well, pretty easy to see what's going on here. The king represents God. He's arranging a marriage for his son, which is Jesus. He calls those who were invited. They refuse, they make light of it. They even kill the king's servants and the king destroys them and invites others. And the wedding hall is filled. No, so far, so good, so simple. The parables about Israel in rebellion against God. They're the ones who were invited. They turn their nose up at God. They kill his servants, the prophets, the evangelists, Jesus himself. And so they're punished and others, the Gentiles, are invited and enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's significant that in the parable, the king throws a marriage for his son. Jesus could have used any kind of feast in the parable. Could have been just any feast, but he made it for his son because God has now sent his son. In the person of the very one telling the parable, he has sent his son to Israel. Okay, and, and they knew that. There was God's own testimony that Jesus is his son in Mark chapter 1. Verses 9 to 11, right after the baptism, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. And Jesus affirmed it and they knew it. John 10, 36, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Clear statement from Jesus. He is the son of God. And they knew it from the Old Testament as well. They were warned about this. In Psalm 2, 11 to 12, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Right there. So they knew about it. Embrace the son or perish. So to this point, the parable is clear and easy to understand. And there are other parables that make this same point that you see in this one about Israel being called, refusing, and being punished, and others coming in into the kingdom. So if this is where the parable ended, it would be very simple. But it doesn't. It continues to the next four verses. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, 
friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the question then is why this add-on? What is the point, the extra point being made here? Seems puzzling. The first and obvious point of question is this. Why does the king call the man friend? Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Why does he call him friend and then have him tossed out? Well, that's not really the problem that would seem to be. Uh, the word friend there in the Greek is hetairos, which means comrade or companion. It's a friend, not as close as the philos friend, but it's a friend. But it's also a general form of address to someone whose name one does not know. It's come across the street. Uh, you want to talk to somebody that you don't know? Just address them as friend. Kind of like we might call somebody, hey, buddy, you know, what you doing here, pal? They're not really our buddy. They're not really our palace. It's a form of address. So the fact that the king in this uh, parable calls a man friend doesn't mean and actually on good terms. That part's uh, not that difficult. We're back to this. What is this wedding garment? And why does the man need to be tossed out of what is the kingdom of heaven if he does not have one? I remember when I took a course on, on Matthew in seminary. I actually had big arguments with the professor about this because he insisted that the wedding garment was good works. And he was pointing to passages in Revelation, uh, Revelation 3, 18, where I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments that you may be clothed. And Revelation 19, uh, 7 to 8, the marriage of the Lamb has come to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So he was insisting that the wedding garment represents your good works. But there are two problems with this understanding. The first problem is that neither of these passages in Revelation actually refer to salvation. Our good works are important. They count for our rewards but not for our salvation. And that's, that's the second and bigger problem here. If, the parable, if in the parable, the garment is good works, and you're thrown out of the kingdom of heaven for not having good works, then you're teaching salvation by works, not by faith. So the false gospel, it's not what Jesus taught. That's a fundamentally and crucially wrong interpretation. And this is why you have to be careful when you're looking at the parables. The solution, of course, comes from the fact that Jesus isn't expecting his hearers to look forward to a book, book of Revelation, that hadn't even been written yet. He expected them to look back at the Old Testament. What do we find in the Old Testament that would shed light on this? Isaiah 61, verse 10. I greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The garment of salvation. Well, well, here, certainly we are talking about salvation. The garments of salvation. And God clothes you in it, not you yourself. You don't go out and buy this. You don't go out and earn this. God clothes you in it. And we see the same kind of thing in Zechariah chapter 1. Uh, sorry, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. 
Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. So here's Joshua, filthy garments, being accused by Satan. What exactly are the filthy garments? Well, we see that in Isaiah 64, 6. We are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like a filthy garment. Our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So the filthy garment, what we're clothed with before God, our works, are a filthy garment. Because, yeah, we do some good things, but we do a lot of bad things. Our iniquities, they can't just be overlooked. So that's our natural state, filthy garments. We can't do anything to get rid of that ourselves. What happens then in Zechariah as we continue the passage? Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So here's an image that the, the Jewish people understood. In our normal state, we're, we're wearing filthy garments before God, not good enough. We need this clean garment, and the master must provide it. And that clean garment represents the removal of our sins. Once you see that, he removes our sins through the propitiation of Christ on the cross, offers us the garment of salvation, free for the taking by faith. And that's what's necessary to be in the kingdom of heaven. Then the parable makes perfect sense. Without that, without that garment that God provides, which we attain through faith in Christ, out you go. You have no place in the kingdom of God. So the parable has two distinct lessons. The first one about Israel rejecting God and receiving their justice for that. And the fact that those who are going to be in the kingdom, there's one way to go, and that's with the garment of salvation provided for you by God through Christ. But to get that full meaning, to get that full meaning, you have to know Scripture. Helpful to do some cross-referencing to get the full points. This, then, is an example of what I would call Parables 301. More complex still, but doable. Now, one more level, Parables 401. These are the toughest. There's, in fact, one parable that Jesus told that seems to tie commentators in knots. No one seems to be quite sure what it means. I'm speaking of the parable of the unjust steward. That's the one we read this morning, our reading. A certain rich man has a steward. He's going to fire him. You can no longer be steward. And a guy said, what am I going to do now? You know, I, I can't do manual labor. I'm not willing to beg. And so he comes up with this plan to obligate by favor with people so that they will receive him afterwards into their homes. They'll take care of him. So he calls the people who owe big bucks to his master, and he allows them to change their bill, give them a discount. Okay? He's using his master's money to bribe the people to take care of him. Pretty cunning. Okay? And in that culture, you were expected. If somebody did you a favor, you were supposed to do one back. So they'll take care of him when he's lost his job. You know? So far, so good. Okay? Seems simple enough, but then you have this line here where the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt truly. And that seems weird. The master represents God here. 
why is he commending the unjust steward for cheating him? And there's more. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Unrighteous mammon, because it wasn't his. It was essentially stolen from his master. Sounds like Jesus is encouraging us to do that. What does it all mean? Well, no one seems to know for sure. And there are ideas about it that are all over the map. They argue about whether the rich man is a good guy in the parable or a bad guy. Half the commentators will say he's a good guy. Half will say he's a bad guy. They can't decide if the steward is a good guy or if he's a bad guy. Some will say, oh, he had the legal right to do this. No, he didn't. And they can't agree on the meaning either. <laughs> New Bible commentary, it says there are various interpretations of this parable. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> the A, the parable may simply urge men to prepare for the crisis brought about by the ministry of Jesus with the same zeal of the steward. Really? You got to tell that kind of complex story about a guy doing bad things to tell you, oh, you got to be like, really? You got to be so busy about preparing for the trouble that's coming, just like a dishonest guy. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, B, men should uh, use their wealth to make God their friend. Uh, Hello, it's not his wealth. He stole it. C, keeping the law and showing generosity are the ways for wealthy people to gain God's approval. Um, Again, it's not generous to give somebody else's money away. And there is none of these interpretations can be excluded. Yeah, exclude all of them. They're absurd. Unrighteous mammon is ill-gotten gains. It's not his wealth. He can't be generous with other people's money, unless you're the government. Uh, Here's another one from the uh, NKJV Cultural Background Study Bible. The point seems to be that one should use money for people rather than as an end in itself. (laughs) What do you think of that one? Was not the steward using exactly for an end in itself to get taken care of afterwards? Uh, Here from the Believer's Bible Commentary, we should use money and other material things in such a way as to win souls for Christ. By stealing other people's money? Chronological and background charts of the New Testament. Disciples of Jesus must use money in acts of kindness. For such action will be beneficial in the future. (laughs) Okay, so steal your master's money. Fry people and you get benefits? No. Okay. These these explanations are absurd. I, I heard one preacher saying that this the sermon is about um buy people with money. Another one seemed to be saying, you know what? Let's just say this is an ironic parable. Let's say it doesn't mean anything. It's it's all just stuff where where Jesus is saying such absurd things as audience will laugh and be entertained. Ha ha. Well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of good explanations out there. So what do we do with this parable 401? Well, the first thing we do, and this is always a good idea, look at what comes at the end of the parable. Look at the final line, the punchline, so to speak. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's the punchline of the parable. So that tells us something of what it's about. It's about God or money. And then we continue to the next verse. It says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they turned up their nose at him. So sure looks like the parable is about choosing between God and money. It's one or the other. Which is it going to be? Which are you going to live for? And with that in mind, the parable Is the rich man supposed to represent God? I don't think so. 
Jesus used rich man as a stock character in three of his parables. And besides this, there's the rich fool, the one who's building bigger and bigger barns to store his goods, and then he dies before he gets to use any of them. There's, of course, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Rich men are not seen as good guys in the parables. There's nothing wrong with being rich, but these are not good people. So this fellow is not the good guy here. He's not God. When we look at it that way, we still wonder, why does the master commend the steward because he had dealt shrewdly? wonder, why does he commend the, the steward for stealing money from him? Well, he doesn't, though. All he commends him for is his cleverness. How cleverly he did this. Okay? And you can see that kind of commendation all the time. <laughs> You're watching uh, mystery shows, for example, where just when they finally catch the bad guy and the hero usually says something like, you were very clever in how you did this. You almost got away with it just before they haul him off to jail. So the fact that the uh, master commended the shrewdness of the steward doesn't mean he's not going to come down on him like a ton of bricks. It's not really all that confusing. Uh, here's the key to the parable. People focus on, on this. I say, do you make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon? But the real punchline is this, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. And then suddenly you realize <laughs> they can receive you into their homes. Until you die. But they can't receive you into an everlasting home. They don't have that to offer you. So this is a gotcha parable. This is a parable where you're following uh, the story. Jesus has traced out the way of a man who makes his way through life by trusting in riches. Doesn't have to be honest. Buying favors. Doing that with somebody else's money. He's so clever. The master even commends how shrewd he is. No wonder these people get rich. People live for money. Yeah, indeed. They're, they're, they're more shrewd about getting money than we are. No wonder they get rich. And people might be thinking, yeah, you know, that's the way to go. And then they keep following until they get to the end of the story. And suddenly hits them, whoa, all great until the end. Because everybody's going to die. As rich as you want to be on, on this planet, you're not going to take it with you. Where are you going after and when that suddenly hits you, it just pulls the rug out from under you. You realize that all the money in the world, all the friends you bought in this world, they cannot give you an everlasting home, everlasting life. Only God through Christ can deliver that. So choose which master you are going to serve. And the parable then becomes clear. It's got your parable. So you go, parable 401, that's uh, about as difficult a parable as you will encounter. But even with that one, if we, we can still understand it with diligent study and thought. So remember, folks, if you are a believer, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. It's all there in the Bible. You can understand the parables, and many of them, folks, are about this, about the need to choose God over money, God over the things of this world. But all of these mysteries of the kingdom of God, mysteries now revealed, it's all there in the Bible. If you have not been putting in the proper work to learn and understand them, now's the time to start. <laughs> Make that your New Year's resolution, folks. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, 
Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.